Well, good afternoon, everybody. I hope everybody's having a great day. Hope they had a great weekend. <laughs> it's been like Murphy's Law around here. Excuse me while I drink some water. It's been Murphy's Law for the last three days around here. Just right up right up to starting this show, it's been like Murphy's Law. It's been crazy. I've been like a New York cab driver the last little while here. Anyway, welcome to Sunday Reading Day. Thank you. We'll give everybody about five minutes to come in. Um, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. Um, we're 45 strong up and down the state. Uh, which means that if you have a paranormal issue, we can get to you. It might take us a couple hours, but we will get to you. We also have affiliates in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. So if you need help, shoot us an email, maybe on Facebook, or you can get us at Twitter. You can get us at um, YouTube. All right. Uh, if you're watching from Facebook today and you like what you hear with this book, this book is a humdinger. Please hit that like button and that follow button. If you uh, are listening from YouTube and you like what you and you like what you see in here, please hit that subscribe button. You can do that by pushing the little uh, clicking on the little ghost in the bottom right hand corner of the screen, and that'll take you over to the subscribe button. We've got more than 450 videos sitting over there, and they're all different topics. So I think there's a little bit of something for everybody over there. As I said. Um, this is like, it's been like uh, Murphy's Law for the last couple of days. So right up to the beginning of the show here, the camera was, the camera shut off and oh my gosh, I don't know. Maybe we got otherworldly things at work here. But anyway, in a couple more minutes, we'll get this started. Um, this book is fascinating. Uh, we ended up reading on, what was it, Thursday? Was it Wednesday or Thursday? We ended up reading because we had some audio issues um, and uh, because the internet was really bad. So we ended up actually reading for, you know, another hour of the book. And wow, what a book. People freezing to death and things like that. So it isn't only about Christmas stories. It's also about just wintertime stories. And it's different types of stories. Whether the, whether it's ghost stories, murder stories, you know, survival stories or whatever. They're in this book. And it's really a good book. Sylvia Schultz is, is the author. Let me reach down here grab some water real quick. Okay. I'm just thirsty right now. Just woke up. I'm going to be honest. I just woke up for a nap. We old folks like to nap on the weekend. Anyway, I hope everybody's had a great weekend. I did. I had a good weekend, except it was, like I said, it was Murphy's Law in action this weekend. But all is well that ends well. So, with that being said, get back to the book. Sylvia Schultz is an excellent writer. There's a lot of research in her books. And I don't doubt the stories in here. If she quotes the newspaper in here like she did um, when I read, what was it? When, Thursday, right? Thursday, yeah. I believe it, you know. But, uh, boy, there's some humdingers in here. So we're going to start today and uh, just grab your popcorn snacks, What you know, whatever it is you do to relax by the fire. Maybe you're eating dinner and you're listening. You don't have to look at my face, even though I like my face. It's a nice face. 
Um, but uh, you don't even have to look at my face. I'm going to just be reading to you. And it's kind of like a relaxing way to get into the weekend. We have about eight hours left on this book, so that means that's going to take us well through Christmas and and into the new year. So, uh, yeah. All right, let me power up my old tablet here. Oh. Now my Christmas wish list. A lot of uh, content creators have wish lists. How about a tablet? Right now I've got a Samsung Galaxy Note 8.0. Real old. It'd be kind of cool to get a new tablet. Around an 8, size 8.0, 10.0. Because this one has seen better days. This one's fallen off the top of my car. You know, we've taken to ghost hunting and all that stuff. So give it a few minutes. It's old. It's old and rickety. But I wouldn't have it any other way. So I we're going to get into this book. I don't know where it's going to lead us tonight, but it's going to lead us somewhere. <laughs> okay. Let me call it on up. I may take another swig of water before I get started here. It's because I had a Snickers bar just as, as the show started, too. It's my own fault. It's my own fault. Okay. Like I said, see, I get this thing powered up. And what does it do? It goes dark. It turns black. And the screen turns black and goes dark on me. So, okay. Let me have one more swig of water, and then we're going to rock on this, okay? Okay. The only reason, too, why I like my Kindle is because I'm blind and I have to have, like, big, big and large text to read. Touch screens are a great thing when you're old. Okay, here we go. Uh, some of the stories that we went through last, on Thursday, we had a woman that had died in a, uh, a cart a horse-drawn cart in the snow because she was going to, I'll just do a recap real quick here. She was going to a dance and she wanted to impress everybody with her dress. So she didn't want to put a jacket on. So no matter what her boyfriend offered her, she refused it. And I guess they had to go four or five miles. And by the time she got there, she was frozen solid. Another story that was supposed to be out of Vermont was about uh, cryogenic freezing actually back in the 1800s. Um, where they would, uh, and this, it was supposed to be a newspaper article about this, where they had um, taken some infirm people, older people and stuff, and took their clothes off, laid them outside, let them freeze to death, buried them, and then in the spring, thawed them out, and they, and they were fine, walking around. Some crazy stuff. And then there were a couple stories from uh, Wisconsin, the Great Lakes, about a uh, ghost ship, okay, you know, a uh, Christmas tree ship going down, and it was it turned out to be a ghost ship, and a couple other, you know, a couple other little ghost stories. So that's where we're at. So now we're continuing, and again we have we're eighteen percent through the book, so it's going to be a while. Okay, the Stratton Mountain tragedy. We have Seba Smith for to thank for giving us another poem about a young woman freezing to death. The Snowstorm, written in 1843, was also based on a true story. In December 1821, Harrison Blake and his wife Lucy set out from their home in Salem, New York, to visit friends and family in Newfane and Marlboro, Vermont. Oh, there goes Vermont again, just over the Green Mountains. 
With them was their youngest child, still just an infant. Uh-oh. Near Stratton, Vermont, the deep snow became impassable. Harrison made the fateful decision to leave Lucy and the baby with the horse and sleigh and travel on foot to find help. According to a newspaper account published a few weeks after the incident, Harrison was away so long that Lucy went searching for him. She lost her way in the snow and froze to death. Before succumbing to the cold, though, she took off her coat and wrapped the baby in it. Rescuers found the infant alive because of Lucy's foresight. The baby was later raised by her grandparents in Marlboro. Harrison, too, survived the ordeal, although he did suffer from frostbitten toes. The poem celebrated the mother's sacrifice, something near and dear to the Victorian mindset. Smith's poem was so popular that it was later reprinted. Looking at something really quick. Okay. That it was later reprinted in several editions of a 19th century child's reader. Here it is Snowstorm by Seba Smith. The cold, wind swept, uh, the cold wind swept the mountain height, and pathless was the dreary wild. And, and mid the cheerless hours of night, a mother wandered with her child. As through the drifting snow she pressed, the babe was sleeping on her breast. And colder still the winds did blow, and darker hours of night came on, and deeper grew the drifting snow. Her limbs were chilled, her strength was gone. Oh God, she cried in accents wild, if I must perish, save my child. She stripped her mantle from her breast and bared her bosom to the storm. And round the child she wrapped the vest and smiled to think her, to think her babe was warm. With one cold kiss, one tear she shed and sunk upon her slowly bed. At dawn a traveler passed by and saw her neath the snowy veil. The frost of death was in her eye. Her cheek was cold and hard and pale. He moved the robe from off the child. The baby looked. The babe looked up and sweetly smiled. Wow. Hell Hollow. Not all the tales of the deep midwinter are as uplifting as a mother sacrificing herself to save her child. The pioneers that settled the West and even the Midwest sometimes had to resort to desperate measures to survive the brutal winters, and sometimes those measures were unspeakable. Decatur sits in the heart of the Illinois prairie. The first settler in the area was William Downing, a fur trapper and honey gatherer who built his cabin in 1820. More settlers followed, around 600 of them, and the town was founded in 1829. Most settlers lived outside of town in log cabins. Not many people had close neighbors. That was the appeal of the frontier life, but at times that life could be quite hard. The winter of 1830 is still known as the deep snow. That winter gave rise to many terrifying tales. The worst story by far came from the area known as Hell Hollow, and it still lives on in Decatur's history today. Perhaps the area's vicious reputation began that long ago winter. The wooded land that would someday be known as Hell Hollow was the most secluded of the settlements around Decatur in the mid-19th in the mid century. In fact, it was so far out of the way that most people in the surrounding area saw it simply as a place to bury the dead. The hills above the narrow valley had been used as a burying ground by local Indians for many years. The settlers took over the hills and hollers, using the land for the same grim purpose. Later still, that land would become Greenwood Cemetery, amazingly haunted in its own right. But well before the cemetery spook lights began to appear, well before the Greenwood Bride was buried here around 1926, 
Before the cemetery was a popular spot for picnic lunches in the 1900s, before Confederate soldiers, dead and dying of yellow fever, were hastily buried when their prisoner transport, transport train stopped in Decatur on the way to Camp Douglas in Chicago, even before then, the settlers of Decatur were buried here, and they have never rested easily. The area that would become Greenwood Cemetery was a darkly wooded valley, shadowy with the secrets of the dead. It was avoided with superstitious dread by most of the settlers. However, in the late 1820s, a small group of pioneers built a handful of cabins in the valley west of the Indian burial grounds. They wrestled a living from thickly timbered land for a few years. Then came the bitter winter of 1830. Snow fell thick in the valley. Winter storms sheeted the cabins with ice. Livestock froze. Game grew scarce. The settlers themselves began to starve. And the folks of Hell Hollow suffered the most. Cut off from the rest of the community, the people in the valley grew desperate. Any unwary game was quickly popped into the stew pot, even the scrawny rabbits and squirrels. Supplies, dried fish, salt beef, flour, canned goods ran low, then ran out. The settlers foraged for food, but even wild food is not easy to come by in the winter. Pine needles make a fragrant tea, but the, but the nourishment they give doesn't last long in the depths of winter. Even garlic mustard is hard to find when it's covered by several feet of snow. The settlers are forced to move on to rawhide, even shoe leather, which they boiled into a watery soup. And still, snow covered the ground, and ice made any travel treacherous. The, the supplies in the valley were long gone. Even the skinny deer were getting skittish with winter, and hunters had to stray farther and farther from the safety of their cabins to find any game at all. The settlers were reduced to the unthinkable. With no other food source available, they turned to each other. Early in the winter, an elderly member of the community had died. His body had been stored in an outbuilding to be buried in the spring when the ground thawed. In desperation, the people of Hell Hollow sliced meat from the frozen corpse and ate it. The stories say that in all, two people were eaten by their neighbors that winter. The settlers whose lives were saved by the grisly deed were sworn to secrecy, as if they would want to confess to such a horrifying act. Later that year, the entire community simply vanished, and the legend of Hill Hollow began. The Phantom Saloon The Wild West held many secrets in its wide-open spaces. A thriving... Hang on a second, I lost it. A thriving community could become a shivering ghost town in the space of just a few years. If the mine failed or the promised railroad didn't come through, sometimes it was just one building out in the middle of the lonesome prairie that held out for a few years and fell into ruin. But every once in a while, a building doesn't die easily. Sometime in the mid-1800s, two ranchers were out riding the range in Park County, Wyoming. They had gone on in search of a herd of cattle. A blizzard was looming, and they were charged with getting the longhorns to shelter. But they were too late. The blizzard swept down quicker than expected. The two ranchers saw the cattle in a gully that was somewhat protected from the wind. Trusting in the cows' thick winter coats to keep them warm, the ranchers turned their horses to safety for themselves. A herd of cattle had huddled together for warmth. Two men, two horses, out on the open plains during a blizzard would surely freeze to death. The two men headed for the ranch, but it was slow going fighting the drifting snow. 
Sleet swirled around the riders, and their horses' heads drooped in exhaustion. Suddenly, a gray form in the distance resolved itself into a building. The riders were still miles from the ranch, and the shack would have to do for shelter. They dismounted, tied their horses under the lean-to at the side of the building, and went inside. The ranchers pulled the weathered gray door closed behind them and looked around. In the fading light of day that peeked through the cracks in the walls, they could see that the building had once been either a restaurant or more likely a saloon. Along one, along one wall was a long bar with a cracked mirror hung behind it. One of the men looked behind the counter, hopefully, but any bottles were long gone. A few lonely tables stood around like strangers at a dance. The men unslung their saddlebags and set about building a fire. There was a hearth, with a few dried sticks scattered on it. One of the men shaved a stick into tinder and struck a spark. Soon a small fire was burning wanly on the bricks of the hearth. Somehow, the small flames just made the shadows in the room look deeper. The two men huddled close to the fire, warming their chilled hands. One of the men glanced over at the bar. Sure wish they left at least one bottle of whiskey when they cleared out, he thought miserably. Then he blinked. He thought he'd seen a shadowy figure behind the bar. The bartender? But as quickly as the shadow had appeared, it flickered and was gone. The man rubbed his eyes and turned back to the fire. Listen, you hear that? The other man muttered. Could have swore I heard the neck of a bottle clinking on a glass. Can't be. That ain't nothing but wishful thinking, the first man said. But maybe. Just maybe, he had seen a ghostly bartender behind the counter. He got up and grabbed one of the old wooden chairs. These ought to burn good. He broke off a leg with a crack and laid the dry wood on the fire. It caught, and the flames leapt up higher. The second man nodded, his eyes wide. The sounds of a saloon began to unfold in the darkness around them, and the shadows of the light of fire couldn't reach. The clack of poker chips came from a dusty table in the corner. A woman's high laugh made the men jump. Someone plunked out, old Susanna, on a piano that was slightly out of tune. The cheerful notes hung like brittle shards of ice in the air. The men moved close to the tiny fire, praying for the dawn. At last, the black loom of the room gave way to gray shadows. The phantom sounds faded away as the fire guttered out. The men yanked open the door and stumbled out of the singing cold. They'd never been so glad to see the sun. They saddled their horses and urged them into a trot, breaking through the fresh snowfall. Neither man looked back, because in their hearts, they both knew what they'd see. A broken-down shack, one that had been abandoned for decades. The Stockyards Chicago's ghosts are myriad. They prowl the streets, the theater alleyways, the apartment buildings, the museums, and the police stations. There are six main police stations in the city. The Stockyards, Hyde Park, New City Inglewood, De Plain, and Grass Crossing. They are all said to be haunted, the Stockyards most of all. Deck Sergeant William Prinville spent a long storied career as a member of the Chicago Police Force. He served at the Stockyards for decades, beginning his career in 1896. Prinville was no stranger to the station's ghosts. In fact, he saw so many spirits in his years of service that he claimed he eventually got used to them and even grew to enjoy their company. One of these phantoms first made his appearance in the winter of 1902 on the night following his death in the basement of the building. The elderly gentleman was well known to the officers of the stockyards. 
they called him the old soldier with a certain rough degree of affection. One winter evening, the old soldier showed up at the station. He'd been trampling through the snow all day and needed a place to spend the night. Sergeant Prinville suggested to the old man that he bunk down in the basement, where the police often allowed the homeless to sleep. The old man nodded his thanks and went down to the warm basement, where he curled up on one of the cots. During the night, other indigents made their way to the safety and warmth of the station's basement. Early the next morning, when everyone was waking up, several of the regulars noticed that the old veteran was still lying motionless in his bed. They realized the old fellow had passed away during the night. Hats in hand, they went upstairs to tell the officers about the old soldier's passing. In the wee hours of the morning of the next day, Sergeant Prinville was manning the duty desk. He was dozing in his chair, enjoying the cozy warmth of the station as the wind howled outside. Soon his shift would be over and he could head home for breakfast. As he daydreamed about hot coffee and scrambled eggs, Sergeant Prinville heard a faint rapping sound at the station door. It didn't sound like the wind. It sounded like someone knocking. The sergeant stood and went to the door. The wind whistled up a flurry of flakes as Prinville opened the door. Peering into the darkness before the dawn, the officer saw the faint outline of someone standing in front of the door. The form, huddled against the cold, looked someone like the old vagrant who had passed away the night before. Prinville couldn't shake the feeling that he was staring at a ghost. He slammed the door against the whirling snow and hurried back to his desk. The old soldier just couldn't have been at the door. With the dawn came the change in shifts. Sergeant Prinville nervously told the day shift officers about the phantom who knocked on the door. The other officers laughed in disbelief. Surely, they said, the swirling snow had been playing tricks on Prinville's vision. But the ghost of the old soldier was not so easily dismissed. The spirit began to show up at the station every winter. Prinville saw the ghost set several times after that, and so did his skeptical colleagues. Nearly every officer who worked at the station saw the old veteran because he came back every winter. On each night following a storm, the night duty officer would hear a knocking at the door. Whoever answered the knock would find the old man standing patiently outside, silently asking for a warm place to sleep. Then the spirit would fade away. Prinville later said that he often spoke to the phantom, but that the old soldier never made any reply. Maybe it was just enough for the old man to know there was some place he could go to find shelter, somewhere in the city where he was welcome. The West Hall Ghost It's just a short walk from West Hall to Wilkerson Dining Hall at the University of North Dakota. Hardly enough to bother with a coat, even in winter. But for a young college student in 1962, the decision to make that short trip without a coat quickly turned into the worst and last idea she ever had. The vicious North Dakota blizzard raced so fiercely that the girl couldn't even see the dining hall from her dormitory. As the door to the West Hall closed behind her and she started toward the dining hall, she clutched her thin cardigan more tightly around her shoulders. She'd be fine. She'd made this walk over a hundred times. She had dinner in the dining hall every single day, for heaven's sake. But the wind whipped the snow into a flurry of stinging light, and the cold bit at her through her clothes. Before she had taken a dozen steps, she was lost. She tried to turn around and get back to the warmth of the dorm, but even that short distance was insurmountable. She stumbled in, in the raging snowstorm, disoriented by the cold, the blowing snow, and the constant whistling wind. No one knows when the girl fell to the white ground or how long it took her to succumb to the cold embrace of hypothermia. 
but the next morning the student was found frozen to death about 60 feet from West Hall. Stunned by the senseless tragedy, the university constructed tunnels to connect the five dorms to Wilkerson Hall, providing a safe warm walk to the dining hall. But it was far too late for the young student, the student who now haunts the West Wall Tunnel, the West Hall Tunnel. She began appearing to terrified students shortly after the tunnel system was completed. She shows up on stormy winter nights. Sometimes she appears to be distraught, seeking her way out of the tunnel before vanishing. At other times, she simply stares blankly out in front of her, gazing unseeingly at frightened witnesses, then disappears. No matter how she presents herself, it is unmistakably her. The ghost is described as strikingly pretty, with short black hair and big dark eyes, and she only appears from the waist up, hanging in the air with no legs. The ghost, appear the ghost appearances have become less and less frequent over the years. Nowadays, she shows up only during especially violent blizzards, when the sky is white with thickly falling snow. No one knows why she manifests in the West Hall Tunnel, instead of above ground, where her body was found. Maybe, even in death, she too appreciates the warmth of the tunnel system, a luxury on a night when the wind howls with the chill of winter. Darlington Station there's just something about the romance of railways that tugs at some people's souls. And the rail system in England at the turn of the 20th century was quite possibly the best in the world. With such a compelling reputation, it's no wonder that some railway stations end up with their own collections of ghosts. Excuse me. Darlington Station, some 200 miles north of London, has seen its shared tragedy. On June 27, 1928, a freight train and a passenger train collided head-on. 25 people were killed and 45 were injured. But none of those folks seem to have straight, stayed on at the station. That doesn't mean the station is without a ghost or two. Some years ago, an old porter was working at Darlington Station. It was a cold night in the depths of an English winter. Around midnight, the porter decided to take a short break. He was freezing cold, and he just wanted a bite to eat and something nice and hot to drink. Downstairs, underneath the station, was a cellar and coal house. The cellar was for the employee's use. The porters often kept a fire going in the hearth for quick comfort. The porter went down the cellar steps, took off his heavy overcoat, and sat down with a sigh of relief on the bench in front of the cra crackling fire. It was good to take a load off for a bit, and soon he'd have water on for a spot of tea. A noise from the coal house door caught the porter's attention. A stranger stepped into the cellar from the coal house. A big black lab trotted at his side. The stranger moved slowly closer to the fire, his gaze locked on the porter. The porter, meanwhile, never took his eyes off the stranger. Without warning, the strange man lashed out and struck the porter. Instinctively, the porter put up his fist and threw a punch back. His fist went right through the man and hit the stone of the fireplace. The rough stone took the skin off his knuckles. But his punch seemed to have had some effect. The stranger let out an unearthly scream and staggered into the fire. The dog, seeing its master in distress, lunged and sank its teeth into the porter's leg. The porter let out a yell, of his, a yell of his own. The stranger stood up straight and called the black dog to his side with a snap of his fingers. Man and dog both backed slowly away from the porter, right through the closed coal house door. When he had recovered, the porter lit a lamp and opened the door to the coal house. He looked around the room thoroughly but he found no trace of the stranger or the big black lab. 
Weeks later, the porter heard that a former railway employee, a man who worked in the ticket office, had committed suicide at the station by throwing himself in front of a speeding express train. The body, well, what was left of it, was taken to the coal house to await the arrival of the undertaker. The ticket agent had owned a large black Labrador retriever. The Lady Vanishes Very few of us are what we seem, quote Agatha Christie, the man in the mist. The mystery writer, Agatha Christie, remains the best-selling novelist of all time. Her novels are marvelously plotted and have become the model for the modern mystery story. She introduced several iconic characters to the world, including Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot. One of Christie's plays, The Mousetrap, opened in West End Theater in 1952 and is still running. Her works have sold over two billion copies. She is outsold only by the Bible and the works of William Shakespeare. And for 11 days of December, 1926, Christie herself was embroiled in a mystery worthy of one of her own best-selling novels. For those 11 days, Agatha Christie disappeared. Shortly after 9.30 p.m. on Friday, December 3, 1926, Christie went upstairs and kissed her sleeping daughter, Rosalind, age 7. Then she went back downstairs, left her house, got into her Morris Cowley, and drove away. Her car was found abandoned on a steep slope in Surrey, England. She had left behind her fur coat and her driver's license. Christie was already a famous novelist, so her disappearance made headlines immediately. Police even theorized that she'd been murdered by her husband, Archie, who wanted to leave her but for his mistress, Nancy Neal. The search for the famous author soon grew to include 15,000 volunteers. People looked for her using search and rescue dogs. An air search was mounted, the first in history. Christie's disappearance even made the front page of the New York Times. Two of Christie's fellow mystery writers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Dorothy Sayers, were trapped, or I'm sorry, were tapped to join the hunt. Who better to solve a mystery than a crime fiction writer? Better yet, two of the best at their craft. But even the creator of Sherlock Holmes struck out. As the search continued, more troubling details came to light. Christie's car was found close to a natural spring known as the Silent Pool. Legend had it that two young children had died there. It was feared that Christie had drowned herself in the pool, but there was nobody and no motive. Christie's new novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, was selling well. Christie's career was on an upswing and her future looked bright. On December 14th, to everyone's relief, the author turned up safe and sound at a spa hotel in Harrogate, Yorkshire, a distance of some 190 miles from Surrey, where her car had been found. She had checked it under the name of Mrs. Neal. A holy... Let's see. A holy... A holy Osogel dig at her husband and his mistress. When asked where she'd been for 11 days, Christie claimed she couldn't remember. Amnesia might be a viable dodge for a character in a mystery novel, but for the novelist herself, it was a flimsy excuse. There were several bizarre aspects of Christie's disappearance. Although the newspapers throughout England and America were plastered with her photograph, Agatha Christie didn't recognize herself in any of the pictures. And when she got to Yorkshire, she simply blended in with the, with the soirees going on in Harrogate without a word to anyone. Harrogate was a swanky place in the 1920s, 
and the hotel Christy checked into, the Swan Hydro, was a fancy spa. Despite checking in with almost no luggage, the famous author soon found, soon found parties and balls to attend. She was eventually recognized by one of the hotel's banjo players, Bob Tappan, who called the police. The police in turn notified Christy's husband, who immediately showed up to collect his wife. But even then, Christy seemed blithely unconcerned with the whole situation. She made Archie wait in the hotel lounge while she changed into her evening gown. There was no sign that Christie's abandoned car had been in an accident, but that was the only theory that police had to go on, that Christie had somehow been involved in an accident or suffered some other trauma and had developed amnesia. It remains one of the great unanswered questions in the literary world, though, because Agatha Christie never spoke of those missing 11 days. December 3rd through 14th, 1926, will forever be a mystery. And for this one, there is no famous detective to solve it in the final pages. The Murder of the Grimes Sisters The 1950s were supposed to have been an idyllic time in America's history. When we think of the post-war years, we think of poodle skirts and sock cops, young couples sharing a shake, a malt shop, Elvis, Elvis Presley swinging his lips, his hips, <laughs> his lips, Sorry, swinging his hips to the new beat of rock and roll. It's thought of as being a safe time, a time when responsible kids could go off to see a movie in the theater and get home later that evening, having had their full fill of popcorn and a double feature. Sadly, it didn't always turn out that way, even in the 1950s. On December 28, 1956, two of the Grimes children, sisters Patricia, 13 years old, and Barbara, 15 years old, left their home on Damon Avenue in Chicago. They were both rabid Elvis Presley fans, and they had seen his latest film, Lovely Tender, a mind-boggling 14 times. They were headed to the Brighton Theater to see it for the 15th and final time. The girls left the house around 7.30 in the evening with $2.50 between them, just enough for movie tickets and snacks. Patricia's school friend, Dorothy Wienert, sat behind the girls, with her own younger sister during the movie. Dorothy and her sister didn't stay for the second half of the double feature, but they did say they saw the Grimes sisters in the popcorn line at the theater during the intermission around 9.30 p.m. Any information about the girls' whereabouts after that is dubious at best. Many people said they saw the sisters on an eastbound CTA bus around 11 p.m. headed into the city and that they got off the bus at 11.05 at Western Avenue, about halfway to their home. Why would they get off there instead of closer to home is unclear. And two teenage boys said they saw the Grimes sisters fooling around near Damon Avenue, giggling and jumping out of doorways at each other. At that point, around 11.30 at night, they would have been about two blocks from home. What is known for sure is that Patricia and Barbara were expected home around 11.45 p.m. Their mother, Loretta Grimes, started to worry when midnight came and went with no sign of the girls. She sent two of her other children, Teresa and Joey, to the bus stop at 35th and Hoyne, hoping the errant girls would turn up there. Teresa and Joey waited until 2 a.m. Three buses came and went, with no sign of Barbara or Patricia. They came home and told their mother the distressing news. At 2.15, Laura Grimes called the police to report her two daughters missing. During the next few weeks, the city of Chicago launched one of the largest missing persons investigations ever seen. An unbelievable 300,000 people were questioned. 2,000 of those were interrogated seriously. 
acting on the tip that the girls had been seen heading for Nashville, Tennessee, and knowing of their obsession with Elvis, the star himself made an appeal to them on January 19th. If you are good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. The theory that the girls had run away from home was considered briefly, then discarded. Loretta Grimes was adamant, as only a mother can be, that her daughters hadn't run away. They had no reason to, she argued. And besides, they had just gotten a much-desired brand-new AM radio for Christmas. Loretta felt sure the girls wouldn't have left such a treasured possession behind. One of the hundreds of people seriously considered as suspects by the police was Walter Kranz. On January 15th, he made an anonymous phone call to the police claiming that the bodies of the Grimes sisters would be found in a park at 81st and Wolf Road. Furthermore, he claimed that this information had come to him in a dream. Then he hung up. That was enough reason for the police to trace the call. Kranz was picked up for questioning and held at the Englewood Police Station for some time. He was given multiple lie detector tests, but was later released when the police could find no solid evidence linking him to the murders. Another suspect was 17-year-old Max Fleeg. He was brought in to be questioned and offered to take a lie detector test, which he failed. In the middle of the test, he confessed to kidnapping the girls. However, at the time, it was illegal to perform a lie detector test on a minor. The test was inadmissible, despite Fleeg having taken it voluntarily. The police had to let him go free. Fleeg was sent to prison a few years later for the brutal murder of a young woman. The frantic search for the Grimes sisters came to a tragic end on January 22, 1957. Leonard Prescott, a construction worker, was driving south on German Church Road near Willow Springs when he happened to glance at the side of the road. Just past the guardrail, he thought he saw the white, tangled limbs of two discarded clothing mannequins. That was just weird enough for him to stop and take a second look. He went and got his wife, Marie, and cautiously they went up to the guardrail and peered over. The waxy limbs didn't belong to mannequins. The nude bodies of Patricia and Barbara Grimes had been tossed at the side of the road. Whoever did the body dump wasn't even concerned enough of being caught to kick the bodies over the drop-off into the ravine and Devil's Creek, just a few feet beyond. Marie Prescott was so upset at the sight of the bodies that she fainted and had to be carried back to the car. The bodies could be mistaken for dummies. They weren't arranged in any meaningful way. They had simply been dumped at the side of the road. Barbara lay face down on her left side, with her knees slightly drawn up. Patricia lay face up, her body carelessly thrown on top of Barbara's. Both girls had wounds and bruises that remain unexplained to this day. The first working theory put forth by Cook County Sheriff Joseph D. Lohman and Harry Glows, an investigator for the coroner's office, was that the girls had been dumped there just after their deaths, which they estimated as being around January 9th. There had been a heavy snowfall that day, with temperatures falling enough to preserve the bodies as they looked at the time preserve the bodies as they looked at the time of death. Besides, the bodies were so close to the road, it was difficult to imagine they hadn't been seen between December 28th and January 9th, when there would have been no snow to cover them. Furthermore, the officials pointed to a thin layer of ice that encased the bodies. That could only have been formed, the investigators theorized, as snow fell and melted on the cooling bodies. It takes, time for, it takes time for a corpse to lose its body, a corpse to lose its body heat. Even a body that had been dead for a few hours would retain enough heat to melt falling snowflakes for a while, allowing a scrim of ice to form as the water froze. But the autopsies told a different story. 
When the bodies had been when the bodies had thawed, the coroners at the Cook County morgue examined the girls' stomach contents. They discovered that the last meal the girls had eaten was dinner before leaving for the movie theater. Apparently, no mention was made of the popcorn they'd eaten at the show. According to this, the girls had to have been killed within hours of their kidnapping on December 28th. So which physical evidence should we believe? The ice on the bodies or the stomach contents? The physical evidence actually contradicts itself, which should not be possible. The investigators were equally baffled. Three experienced pathologists performed the autopsies. Although the official cause of death was murder, the best they could do as far as the explanation was secondary shock due to exposure to the elements. And they only wrote that down because they couldn't determine any other cause of death. Meaning, oddly enough, that none of the wounds on the girls' bodies were fatal ones. But and Barbara were buried on January 28, 1957, one month after they went missing. Portrait photos of the girls were propped on their white caskets. They were buried in Holy Sepulchre Catholic Cemetery. But the Grimes sisters may not rest in peace. German Church Road is the site of a, resi- of a residual haunting. Many witnesses have reported hearing a car pull off to the side of the road at the dump site. There was a squeaking crunch of a car door opening, then two sickening thumps, dead meat hitting frozen ground. The door slams shut, the engine revs, and the car pulls away. All of this is heard, never seen. But the Grimes sisters are not forgotten. The Glastonbury Vanishings The area around Glastonbury Mountain near Bennington, Vermont, is New England's version of the, of the Bermuda Triangle. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, at least six people disappeared in that area of the state. Two of these vanishings happened in December. The second person going missing was an 18-year-old college student, Paul John Weldon, a sophomore at Bennington College, set off for a short hike on the long trail on Sunday, December 4th, 1946. Oh, wow. Hang on a second. Paula, Paula John Walden, I'm sorry, that's fine. She never came back out of the woods. The next day, the sheriff's department launched a massive search for the young woman. Deputies were joined by 400 townspeople, including students and faculty at Bennington College. They searched the woods thoroughly for the petite popular student. In the weeks that followed, teams from the FBI swarmed over the mountain, continuing the desperate search. But despite detailed posters offering a $5,000 reward for Paula's safe return and a $2,000 reward even if she was found dead, plus the combined efforts of hundreds of volunteers and a famous clairvoyant, no trace of Paula Weldon was ever found. On December 22nd, the Sheriff's Department officially ended the search, and Paula's heartbroken family and friends were left to celebrate a bleak Christmas without her. Exactly three years to to the day later, on December 1st, 1949, Jim Tedford became the third person in the area to go missing. He was a World War II veteran, age 56. Oddly enough, things in Tedford's life were already a bit strange. In the early 1940s, Tedford came home one day to find that his wife, Pearl, had disappeared without a trace. Parentheses. Jim, as mentioned, was in his 50s. Pearl was 28. Were they having problems? Did she tire of life with an older man? Had she found someone else? We'll never know. End of parentheses. Tedford slipped into a downward spiral of depression, and in 1947, he moved into a veteran's home in Bennington, Vermont. He kept to himself, mired in his personal misery. He left the home only occasionally to visit relatives in St. Albans, 
He finished up such a visit that early December day in 1949 and got on a bus to return to Bennington. Incredibly, witnesses saw him get on the bus, but apparently he never got off. Even the bus driver had no explanation as to how one of his passengers could disappear without a trace from a moving bus. The Indians believed Glastonbury Mountain was a cursed place. Early settlers found it an eerie spread of wild land, full of strange lights and unexplainable sounds. Some of the settlers came away from the mountain with tales of monstrous animals. And some people, like Jim Tedford and Paula Jean Rolden, simply vanished into the unknown. The Marfa Lights A car pulls over to the side of Highway 90 in West Texas, rolling to a stop at the soft crunch of the desert sands. Another car follows, and drivers and passengers get out. Someone has thought to grab a few lawn chairs. Those without chairs perch on the hoods of cars. The engines tick softly as they cool the night air. Everyone looks towards the horizon, southwest of Marfa. There they are, glowing balls of light, form in the distance, swooping across the landscape. They change color every so often, fading from red to blue, back to red, and then gleaming white. They are the Marfa lights, and they have been fascinating people since at least 1850s. As with all spook lights, theories abound as to what the Marfa lights actually are. Skeptics say there's a perfect logical explanation. The lights are campfires, perhaps, or lights from passing cars. Believers point out the absence of car headlights in the 19th century, which was when the lights were first reported. Whatever they are, the Marfa lights are said to be mostly aloof, but sometimes friendly, even whimsical. They usually appear as glowing points of light far off in the distance, but some viewers claim to have been approached by the lights. They say the lights can zip across the desert at astonishingly fast speeds and dissolve right before canoning into the Canoning into the onlookers. Most people who have watched the Marfa lights agree that the lights are not a threat. In fact, one winter night, a rancher had a close encounter with the lights, and they saved his life. Halfway between Marfa and Alpine, Texas, are the Shinanting Mountains. I apologize if I get that wrong, guys. Years ago, a local rancher was out late in the day driving his strayed stock down from the mountain slopes. A blizzard whipped up and the rancher was caught out in the nasty weather as night fell. He knew he had little chance of making it safely back to his cabin in the dark along dangerous mountain trails, but to stop walking would be to freeze to death. The rancher had no choice but to head home, but he soon realized he'd lost the trail. A huge boulder blocked his way. He was hopelessly lost. Suddenly, the rancher was face to face with several flashing lights. They spoke with him telling him that he was dangerously close to the edge of a cliff. He had to follow the lights and trust them, or die. The lights bobbed down a trail, lighting it as they went, and the rancher followed them. They led the rancher to a tiny cave where he could escape the vicious wind and driving snow. He crawled into the cave, and a large light followed him. The rancher discovered he could warm himself with the heat radiating from the light. A smaller light wedged itself in the cave, too. The light spoke, to the man again. Somehow the rancher understood that the lights were spirits from the distant past that had come to save him. After a while, the man slept, secure in the protection of the lights. When he woke up, it was daylight. The lights were gone, and the sun was shining. 
a man crawled out of the cave and stood, getting his bearings. He noticed the boulder that had blocked his trail the night before. Cautiously, he climbed it and peered down over the cliff edge the lights had warned him about. The darkest midnight in December. Sadly, the same tragedies that plague us during the rest of the year can happen during the most joyful season, too, as these stories show. Some of the stories have spirits associated with them. Others simply stand as grim reminders of life's frailty. Here are several tales of murder, mayhem, and malevolence. The Curse of, T of Tecumseh One of the main characters in the ongoing story of the clashes between whites and Native Americans was Tecumseh, leader of the Shawnee. Leader of the Shawnee. Tecumseh and his brother, Tescawatata, I'm sorry if I blow this, guys. Tens All right. Where's this going? Who called himself the prophet. We're going to stick with the prophet. Tangled regularly with future President William Henry Harrison. Born to wealthy parents near Richmond, Virginia, Harrison joined the army in 1791 and distinguished himself in the early Indian Wars. In those days, the western frontier was a wilderness below the Great Lakes in the area that later became Ohio and Indiana. Where am I? Tecumseh and the Prophet formed a large confederation of tribes in that area. The wrangling between Harrison and governor, as governor of the Indian Territory and the two brothers as leaders of the Indian tribes was not only military but social and political too. In the early 1800s, Harrison was looking for a way to discredit the brothers in the eyes of their people and in the eyes of their people. In 1806, he sent an open letter to the tribes gathered at T Tippecanoe, which the Shawnee used as their main home. Harrison issued a challenge to the tribe's leaders. If he, referring to the prophet, is really a prophet, ask him to cause the sun to stand still or the moon to alter its course, the rivers to cease to flow or the dead to rise from their graves. Harrison, a Christian, was framing his challenge from a Christian perspective. Quite literally, he was asking for the prophet to perform a miracle to prove his fitness to lead. The letter was duly delivered to the brothers for consideration. Now, when you ask someone from a nature-oriented culture for miracles involving nature, they're liable to take you seriously. According to the story, Tecumseh and the prophet shut themselves away for an hour to confer in private. When the hour was up, they came out and ordered the tribe to gather to hear the reply to Harrison. The prophet announced that, as, as the prophet, he had consulted with the Great Spirit. And boy, was she pissed. The Great Spirit, it seemed, was displeased by Harrison's audacious request. The prophet announced, 50 days from this day there will be no cloud in the sky. Yet, when the sun has reached its highest point at that moment, will the Great Spirit take it into her hand and hide it from us. The darkness of the night will cover us and the stars will shine round about us. The birds will roost and the night creatures will awaken and stir. The day predicted for this apocalyptic event was June 16, 1806. Around noon that day, a total solar eclipse crossed the region. In North America, the path of totality stretched from the southern tip of Lake Michigan to just north of Cincinnati. This covered most of the territory occupied by Tecumseh's tribes. Greenville, Ohio, where Tecumseh and the Prophet viewed the event with a thousand or so followers, was not in the path of totality, 
but they did see the eclipse in impressive 99% totality. How did the prophet know about the coming eclipse? As a young man, the prophet was an alcoholic. He fell into a fire during a bender and survived. After that, he dedicated his life to preaching sobriety to his people. He kept close to home, preferring the company of his tribe and family. His brother Tecumseh, on the other hand, had a completely different personality. Tecumseh was well-traveled and well-educated to boot. He enjoyed mingling with people of diverse backgrounds. He befriended a Mr. Galloway who lived in western Ohio. Rebecca Galloway, the settler's daughter, taught Tecumseh how to read English. This was a time when most literate households kept an almanac handy. Tecumseh could have seen the news of the June 16 eclipse and filed it away in his mind. It certainly came in handy when he needed to pull out a miracle to pull a miracle out of his back pocket. Unfortunately, this failed to impress Harrison, and the whites and the natives moved closer and closer to war. Early in 1811, Tecumseh went on a grand tour of the Midwest and down to the south of the southern states. He intended to speak to as many native warriors and chiefs as possible to try and raise an army to drive the white settlers back in the sea. He spoke with the Sioux and the Apache in the west, and they, being the Sioux and the Apache, were totally on board with the plan. But not everyone was willing to listen to Tecumseh's fiery message. The Alabama tribe, who lived along the southern stretch of the Mississippi River, was particularly dismissive of the Shawnee's leader's mission. Their chief casualty told Tecumseh, promises are like the wind. The wind is free. Talk is nothing. This did not sit well with Tecumseh. Tecumseh, furious, he promised that when he returned to his tribe, the Alabama people would be sorry. I will stamp the ground three times, and the earth will tremble and shake down all your wigwams. You will remember Tecumseh. On December 16, 1811, the most violent earthquake in the history of the United States roared through the central Midwest, with its epicenter at New Madrid, near the junction of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. It was just the beginning of months of destruction as the ground continued to shake. The New Madrid quakes were the most damaging in Earth's history. Between December 16, 1811 and March, and March 1812, over 2,000 quakes rocked the central Midwest and 6,000 to 10,000 pummeled the area around New Madrid. Three of the New Madrid quakes are on the list of America's top earthquakes. December 16, 1811, 8.1 on the Richter scale. January 23, 1812, 7.8, and February 7, 1812, as much as 8.8. That first quake on December 16 was felt strongly across 130,000 square miles and moderately over nearly 3 million square miles. It rattled windows as far away as the White House and rang church bells in Boston. The Mississippi River, lifeblood of the Midwest and home to the Alabama tribe, ran backwards for a few hours because of the upheaval of the soil in the riverbed. The exact number of casualties is unknown, but estimates range from, range, range from several hundred to several thousand dead. The Alabama Indians met each other's terrified glances. Tecumseh did, what, did, did say he was going to stamp his feet and make the earth tremble. Coincidence? Or the supernatural power of a man at the end of his rope of frustration over the decline of his culture and his people? The Brooklyn Theater Fire. Guys, I'm going to grab a drink real quick. Just hang, hang loose here. Give me a minute. Never mind. Hang on a second. Let's see, this is the day I told you about. 
Murphy's Law all day long. All right. That's for the effects and stuff. Like, okay, sorry about that. We shall continue. The Brooklyn Theater Fire. On December 5th, 1876, theater patrons screamed, <coughs> streamed into the Brooklyn Theater in New York. They were there to attend the held-over show called The Two Orphans. The Brooklyn Theater had been built in 1871, opening its doors for the first performance on August 2nd of that year. The Brooklyn soon became a showplace in the New York theater scene. Built on the site of the old St. John's Episcopal Church, the theater was designed in an L shape with two wings. This being New York City, space was at a premium even then, and the theater hotel was tucked into the angle between the two wings of the theater. The larger of the wings contained the proscenium theater with the rear stage wall abutting Johnson Street. This wing also included the auditorium seating area, the stage, the actors' dressing rooms, and storage for scenery, furniture, props, and flats and painted backgrounds. 20-foot-wide 20 20 scene doors opened onto Johnson Street to accommodate large scenery flats and props. The stage doors were also on Johnson Street. These were smaller, but still wide enough for people carrying armloads of props or costumes to get through comfortably. As those two sets of doors were accessible to the stage, they were reserved for use by the production crews. The two orphans had been held over due to its popularity, but it was nearing the end of its run. Materials for the next two productions were already being stored at the theater. The backstage area, usually fairly spacious, was crammed with tightly packed items such as scenery flats. This made it difficult for actors and crew to walk around the backstage and in the wings. Space was at such a premium that the managers decided that the fire buckets filled with water should be removed so people wouldn't knock them over and spill them while trying to maneuver around the extra set pieces. Even more scenery flats were stacked leaning against the back wall, blocking the fire hose. The architect who designed the building, Thomas R. Jackson, had the safety of the theater patrons uppermost in his mind. He designed the theater so that in case of emergency, the building could be completely emptied within five minutes. There were no fire escapes, but Jackson built three special exits into the long wall of the L. In addition to the large scene and the stage doors, there were three six-foot-wide double doors that opened onto Blood's Alley which led to Washington Street. Although these doors were kept locked to prevent people sneaking in without a ticket, the ushers all had keys so the doors could be opened easily at a moment's notice. The theater had three seating levels with different ticket prices according to desirability of seats. On the main floor, there were 600 seats in two sections, Parquet and Parquet Circle. The best seats were in Parquet Circle, and those tickets were above 50. Parquet seating was close to the stage, meaning that although patrons were close to the action, the sight lines weren't as good. Those seats were not ideal, so they were priced at 75 cents. The lower balcony held 550 seats at a dollar each. The upper balcony, or family circle, sat at 450 patrons with seats priced at just 50 cents. The main flight of stairs from the first balcony was 10 feet wide and led to the box office lobby. The family circle though, had a different design than the two lower levels. It had only one exit staircase leading from the upper balcony. It was a generous width, nearly seven feet, but to get downstairs, patrons had to walk down two flights of stairs separated by a long corridor. Just as on a ship, the folks 
and the cheap seats weren't allowed to mingle with the patrons who paid higher prices for their tickets. The family circle had a separate entrance, a separate set of stairs, even a separate box office. The theater was lit with gas lighting. The stage itself was also the stage itself also used gas lights equipped with reflectors and protective wire frames. The wire enclosures were designed to keep objects at least a foot away from the open flame. During the performance of the two orphans on December 5th, there were about 1,200 people inside the theater, including over 100 theater employees, actors, and stage crew. The house manager reported that they had sold about 250 tickets for the parquet and the parquet circle, less than half of the 600-seat capacity. 360 tickets for dress circle, over half of the 550 seats available, and 400 tickets for the family circle, meaning nearly all of the 450 seats there were filled. Not bad for a Tuesday night. Just past 11 p.m., the curtain was set to rise fifth and on the fifth and final act of the play. Stage manager J.W. Thorpe noticed that a set piece that had just been raised to get it out of the way was hanging at a funny angle with a torn corner. Worse than that, there was a small fire, not much bigger than the man, a man's fist, burning in the damaged corner. Thorpe realized that the piece had gotten hung up for a moment on the wire cage of one of the gas lights as it was raised and had ignited. The star of the show, actress Kate Claxton, was in position for the beginning of the scene. She was lying on her back on a straw pallet. On the straw pallet, the stage having been arranged to look like a derelict boathouse. Two other actors were also on their marks waiting for the curtain to rise, with two more waiting in the wings for their cues. The theater was filled with the hush of an expectant audience. Thorpe had a decision to make. There, there were no handy fire buckets filled with water, and he couldn't get to the fire hose behind the flats leaning against the back wall. He signaled for the curtain to be raised anyway and muttered for two nearby carpenters to try to beat the fire out. The curtain went up, and Kate gamely said her first few lines, lying on her back, lying on her bit of straw. She could see the sparks floating above her head as the carpenters whacked at the drop, as the carpenters whacked with the drop among poles. As Kate lay there, another actress knelt just behind her, hidden from the audience by the canvas backdrop. Save yourself, for God's sake, she whispered. I'm running now. The fire grew bigger, despite the carpenter's efforts, and soon licks of flame were drifting down, along with more sparks. Actress Mary Ann Farron, who had been waiting in the wings, jumped, jumped her cue and came onto the stage to kneel next to Kate. Pretending to play her role, she whispered to Kate that the fire was growing. By this time, the audience could see smoke and flames coming from the stage, and they started to panic. One of the actors on stage, J.B. Studley, stepped to the front of the stage and tried to bully the audience back into their seats. The play will go on and the fire will be put out. Be quiet. Get back in your seats, he shouted. Amazingly, this worked for a bit. The audience settled down and some people did sit back down. Kate, having abandoned her palate, attempted to further reassure the patrons. She too broke character and stepped forward, telling the audience that the fire was part of the play, nothing to be worried about. Let's all just remain calm. But as she said the last bit, a burning piece of wood fell to the stage at her feet. Everyone's nerve broke and panic swept the theater. Most of the actors and production crew found their way to the large stage doors and went through them to safety. But the growing fire blocked this escape route for the audience. Head usher Thomas Rockford unlocked the emergency exit on the Flood's Alley at the rear of the auditorium. Patrons seated in the parquet and parquet circle on the main floor 
easily found their way out through that exit. But when Rochford opened the rear door, exit door, the sudden flow of fresh air into the building fed the flames, and the fire spread in the back of the auditorium and up towards the balconies. The people in the dress circle, lower balcony, weren't having as much luck escaping the fire. Most people didn't know there was an emergency staircase on the opposite wall from the main staircase. So everyone in the dress circle stampeded for the main door, main stairs, which led to the Washington Street lobby. The safety of the street just lay the safety of the street lay just beyond the lobby. But panic stole reason, and the staircase soon became jammed with people trying to claw their way out. Fortunately, for those trapped patrons, the first precinct police station was just next door. Officers rushed to the scene, and several positioned themselves at the bottom of the stairs. Policemen and theater employees worked to untangle the crowd as people pushed to get to the exit. Nearly everyone who had been seated in the lower balcony eventually made it out of the building to safety. It was a far different story in the upper balcony, the family circle. Almost every seat in the upper balcony was filled, and when the fire broke out, all 400 people in the balcony surged toward the exit. Just as in the lower balcony, the press of bodies quickly became a jam, with no one being able to move in the crush of panicked people. Down below, the raging fire filled the theater with heat and smoke, which pushed its way along the ceiling and collected in the upper balcony. Soon, the people trapped Next to the ceiling began to pass out from the thick smoke and heated air. Firefighters and policemen had by now succeeded in clearing the stairs leading to the lower balcony. They made their way to the dress circle, which was empty. Then they opened the door that connected the family circle stairs and were met with a roiling wall of thick black smoke. They shouted up the stairs in the darkness, but got no response. Thinking that everyone in the upper balcony had escaped, District Engineer Farley ordered all the first responders out of the building. Within minutes of their evacuation, large cracks shot through the theater wall along Johnson Street. Just under half an hour after the tiny, fist-sized fire was spotted, the entire wall theater collapsed in a roar of destruction. When Brooklyn Fire Department Chief Engineer Thomas Nevins arrived on scene to take command just before 11.30 p.m., he realized quickly that the theater was a total loss. His job at that point was not to put out the blaze. His job was to keep other buildings from catching fire like the Theater Hotel, which was snuggled right up against the burning theater. The Brooklyn Theater was allowed to burn itself out. A crowd of onlookers had begun to gather. Some of the people in the crowd were frantic with worry, asking desperately about missing family members. Despite this ominous outpouring of questions, the authorities honestly thought that most of the people had escaped the fire. Firefighters and policemen had searched the dress circle and found it empty. They hadn't made it as far as the family circle but no one had answered their calls. Surely, they thought, most people had gotten out in time. Around 3 a.m., the blaze finally began to relent. Chief Nevins tried it in the building then, but the heat and smoke were still too intense, and he had to back away. He tried again later and was able to get into the Johnson Street entrance. Just inside the lobby doors, he found the body of a woman, sitting on the floor, propped up against the wall. Her legs had largely been burned away, and the rest of her body was severely burned as well. Nevins realized with a sixth sense of horror that where there was one body, there were bound to be others. He came back out of the building but didn't tell anyone what he'd found. He feared that the milling crowd, already on the edge with tension of uncertainty, would storm the crumbling building. No one entered the theater again until well after 6 a.m. The fire had nearly burned itself out. Almost nothing remained of the auditorium. The entire structure had all collapsed at the cellar, 
Chief Nevins decided that the time had come to enter the theater once again. The first thing the firemen noticed was that the cellar was filled with a tangle of charred debris. As they came closer, they realized the jolt that the blackened material in the cellar wasn't just rubble. It was a smoking tangle of human corpses. When the balconies had burned through and collapsed in the cellar, they had taken all those poor souls, the people trapped in the family circle with them. Although the... Hang on. All right. Just one small mummy. Okay. Although the bodies were horribly burned, the victims had died of smoke inhalation and heat long before the buildings collapsed. The firemen staggered from the cellar with the news that as many as 20 people had perished. By 9 a.m., as the firemen worked steadily on body retrieval, that number had risen to 70. Two hours after that, they'd found 20 more victims. By early afternoon, firemen estimated that over 200 people had lost their lives to the fire. It would take nearly three days for workers to remove all the bodies from the, from the smoldering wreckage of the theater. Many corpses simply fell apart as the firemen tried to pick them up or crumbled at the slightest touch. In many cases, the bodies were burned beyond recognition and so badly that not even gender could be determined. In the end, nearly 100 victims of the fire could not be identified. They were buried in a mass grave in Greenwood Cemetery by the city of Brooklyn. The grave, dug in the semicircle, was used for the victims that could not be identified and for the people whose families couldn't afford to pay for burial. After all, most of the victims had been in the cheapest seats. 103 people were laid to rest in that common grave. They were arranged with their heads toward the center of the semicircle and donated coffins trimmed with silver. Over two, let's see, okay. Over 2,000 people attended the services for these mostly unknown victims. The number of people killed in the Brooklyn Theater Fire engraved on the memorial marker in Greenwood Cemetery is 278. But it wasn't easy to arrive at that number, and it may not even be correct. It was difficult for the coroner's office to figure out how many complete bodies could be made up from the piles of arms, heads, and legs, and torsos. And it was impossible to account for body parts that had been burned away entirely. Henry Sims, the coroner for Kings County, announced the death toll as 293 on the Friday following the fire, but later revised it down to 283. Later, researchers... Hang on. Okay, have placed the number of victims closer to 300. For the first two days of recovery efforts after the fire, much of the work, including guarding the ruins, was done by the Brooklyn Police Department. Many of the officers had been working around the clock and had been called to the scene from their regular beats around the city. Members of the 13th and 14th regiments of the New York National Guard offered to stand in for the officers, giving them a much-needed rest and allowing them to resume their usual duties. The 14th Regiment was given the night shift beginning at 6.30 p.m. After the fir after first, at first, the guardsmen were kept busy patrolling the showered ruins, keeping mourners safe and warning away curiosity seekers and scavengers. But eventually, things settled down, and the guardsmen were left to watch over the site in quiet wakefulness. But the guards weren't alone. Sometimes they would hear the soft sound of a, wo of, of, of a woman's sobs coming from the cellar. No one was allowed inside the building especially at night. The wreckage of the cellar was pitch black, and it was dangerous to go wandering about. Two of the guards, hearing these desolate cries, went into the building to find the distraught woman. They saw a dark shape in the cellar, a woman, or so they thought. 
She was walking through the debris, weeping, bent over as though she was looking for something or someone. One of the men clambered over, over the wreckage to get her close, to get closer to her, to try and escort her out of the danger. But as he got closer, the woman just vanished. The spirit appeared two more times over the next week, then was never seen or heard again. Either the woman found what she was looking for, or she just gave up. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Let me close this down. We will continue next week. 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Okay. I want to thank you all for coming tonight and spending the evening with me to read, hear the book. And, uh, wow, there's some deep stories in here. Like I said, it's not just about Christmas. It's about winter stories. and. Uh, you know, stuff like that. So that's what that's what we're doing here. Tomorrow, uh, we'll be back at 6.30 p.m. And we're going to be talking about alien hybrids, alien hybrid programs. And Geraldine Orozco will be with us. And Geraldine has a unique story to tell in that she, well, I'll let her tell the story pretty much. But she um, has been, has for a long time, after she had like a hypnotic, you know, stuff done, realized that she'd been abducted by aliens all her life and has been involved in the hybrid program with aliens. So she'll be with us tomorrow at 6.30. Anyway, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And we're just trying to get the word out about this show. So I'd appreciate it if you share it because you guys have done so well doing that. You know, and uh, yeah. We just, we're just looking for followers to build this thing up and build this thing up. And little by little, that's what's happening. All right. And again, if you're uh, watching from Facebook and you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. But again, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. And I will see you all tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great night.